What's up? What's up? What's up? What's up, guys? What's up? Welcome to another episode of your favorite podcast, Tell Them I Am, with your favorite person, Misha Yusuf. So I'm going to tell you a story. This one comes from Rumi, and the story goes, some Hindus are showcasing this really special exhibition. And they won't tell anyone what it is. Tons of people hear about it and get really, really curious. They come from far away to see this mysterious exhibit. And when they get there, they realize that the room is way too dark to actually see anything. So what do they do? They start feeling around the room, looking for this thing that they've been hearing about. One guy reaches into the darkness and he feels this long, squishy tube. And he's like, hey, I know what it is. It's like a water pipe. A lady grabs something flat and triangular and she's like, no guys, it's a large fan. Another person runs into something larger and taller and is like, trust me, it's a pillar. And the last dude rubs what feels like a chair So he decides it must be a great throne. This display by the Hindus. Yep, yep, yep. They are all way off. The exhibit is a living, breathing elephant. So the story was originally in the Musnavi, which is a six-volume book of poetry by Rumi. These stories are supposed to be like mystical interpretations of Islam. Anyway, back to the elephant story. A lot of people think that the poem ends here. And they're like, okay, moral of the story, talk to each other, communicate, la-di-da. But the poem keeps going. And there's a whole other part that starts getting at something way deeper and more spiritual than just talk to each other. Rumi goes, The eye of the outward sense is as the palm of a hand. The whole of the object is not grasped in the palm. Waves of foam rise from the sea night and day. You look at the foam ripples and not the mighty sea. We, like boats, are tossed hither and thither. We are blind though we are on the bright ocean. Ah, you who are asleep in the boat of the body, you see the water. Behold, the water of waters. Here's how I see it. We are the elephant. And in a dark room, in moments of fear, It's hard to see all of ourselves at once, let alone reveal our full self to other people. Because our truth is literally too big for a dark room, too big for us to grasp with just the palm of a small hand. And what a shame to not see ourselves or be seen as we are when we are the ocean and the foam and the water and the boat and the feeling of the sun. My name is Amru Al-Qadi. My drag name is Glamru. Glamru Al-Khalifa Al-Hayati Ladanim is 
my full drag name. I am a writer, performer, and filmmaker. So I was really religious, sort of just culturally, but, you know, I was praying five times a day, doing Ramadan, and then age seven or eight was when I learned about hell and learned that, you know, every time you commit a sin, you get bad points on your left shoulder. Every time you do a good deed, you get good points on your right. And so I started to become very God-fearing in a, I must make sure that I please Allah no matter what, you know, was very much on the forefront of my mind from a very young age. But it was a bit too young to be sort of worried that, like, everything that I was thinking would, you know, result in being, you know, lashed by Satan. When we came to the UK, I met sort of non-Muslims, and um, during one Ramadan, I just became such a brat, like, whilst everyone was fasting, I would, like, eat bacon in front of them. <laughs> and and so, I'd say until I was about, like, 25, 26, as a sort of uh, rebellion against both Islam and my family, I just aspired to whiteness in quite a massive way. I mean, I asked to enroll in a speech therapy program to erase the Arab out of my voice and speak British. And I walked around with a really posh accent and would, I pretended I was Christian. I literally pretended I was Christian in front of all the other boys. And then when I was 11, it got quite serious, the fear, because I was definitely feeling, you know, I told my uncle that I wanted to marry Macaulay Culkin in Home Alone, and that meant there was a whole family intervention about that, like, literally. And then I went out with my mum and her friend, and they walked me through Soho, and they were, like, pointing at the gay people and were like, they should all be shot, you know, so it was quite extreme. After high school... Amru gets accepted to Cambridge University. It was the first time in my life that I had nobody supervising me, as it were. So I just decided to do drag. And it was funny because it was that was like sort of the time that Lady Gaga's Born This Way was coming out. And so when I did my first performance, which was like in a crypt, <laughs> like underground, where I'm sure there was asbestos, I just sort of said random crap like, you know, you're, you're all born, born this way, way bitches. bitches. Love, Love yourself. yourself. Really sort of empty 101 gay platitudes that really don't mean anything, but everyone's like, oh my God, she's so confident. And so I think like, you know, early 20s when I was becoming well-known as a drag queen, it was definitely like within very Western spaces, which I think made me equate drag and queerness with whiteness and um, with, with being Western. I was dressing up as white pop stars and very much saw it as secular. I think I did a show where I literally just said, fuck religion, in a really sort of uninterrogated, immature way. And, you know, memory does that. When you sort of associate something as bad, everything becomes bad. And so I just sort of had family, religion, all of the Middle East, all Arabs as bad, you know, in my head. The early bits of my drag, I was never vulnerable on stage. 
it was a place that I could sort of lie and feel like I was really confident and really resolved about my gay identity. But the truth was, it was sort of like a second closet because I was having to hide that from family and hadn't resolved any of that stuff. So there was a real distinction between Glamru, who was really happy and confident and everyone thought, oh, yay, she is, she loves herself. And then like a person who really hated themselves behind the scenes. My parents actually were living in Dubai at the time, but I have an uncle who was getting wind of what I was doing and he was very much like, you really have to either quit this or just make sure it's really low key. But then when we came to London, we started doing quite well, a drag troupe, and we ended up doing a gig in the West End, like a like a two-night thing in the West End. But, you know, there was like 500 people there. A friend of a friend of my uncle's was just putting up the videos on Facebook and it got back to him. And he ended up in a sort of fit of sabotage sending that to my parents. And then they came back to London. And that was probably when the craziest stuff was said by my mum to me. Like, I mean, she said I was the source of her life's unhappiness. I was like the biggest, you know, embarrassment of the family. She said that. You know, I was an impossible person to love. I was really selfish. That was something that kept coming back because it was causing such a scandal back in Dubai where my family lived. Like an actual scandal, not just like an emotional one. They're a scandal with their family. But with audiences, they are a sensation. The audiences were so white. Um, I was very much like whenever I would say anything about Islam or you know, a cursory comment, like, I would get a lot of white liberal laughs, you know, because they're so nervous about anything that they're just going to give you five stars. That's literally what I felt, you know. It was just like, oh my God, she said something about race, let's all clap. So Amory's performance starts to evolve, and they begin integrating more of themselves into their shows and more of their complicated relationship with Islam into their sets. I was doing a comic... (laughs) bit about um, the the parallels between being gay and Muslim and it was pretty out there and it was like a 10pm show and there was this moment where I was like talking about sexual punishment among gay men and mosques and how chemsex parties and mosques sometimes feel like the exact same things because you've just basically got people just bottoming and just submitting the whole time non-stop and there was this one set that I did where I broke up with Allah. This next song is for you, Allah. Goodbye, boo. And with white audiences, I can get away with this because this is my territory and, and they're all so scared that whatever. But there was one night where five Muslim women in full hijabs were in the front row. And I was like, oh God, I'm only used to performing to white audiences. The show opened with me singing a remix of Lady Gaga's Bad Romance with the Islamic call to prayer and being like, this is a bad romance. I don't know how to be gay and Muslim. They were literally like in the front row, like, what is this bitch doing? Saying things like, stuck for Allah, alhamdulillah, which I was interpreting because my brain had such a sort of negative association with those words. Like, this is, a, this is haram. You know, I said 
like, you know, my God, Allah, why does he want to sleep with me five times a day for crying out loud? Like, this is so non-consensual, you know, really like going there. I Halfway through the show, I asked the stage manager, I was like, should we cancel this? Because we've got women who are hating it and I don't want to upset anyone. And they were like, they're loving it, you know? They literally said they, they keep laughing. And I was like, you don't understand, they're laughing at me. I think we should cancel the show, especially as I have to go on stage in five minutes and pretend a mosque is a chemsex party. I was in a sequin leotard with like my ball sack popping out. My face was like caked in like emerald paint and glitter. I also at one point thought, They're my mum's friends. They're here to bring me home. And then I threw up in a bin straight after the performance because I was so like, what happened? You know, I had essentially just performed the most like transgressive set of my life in front of five versions of my mother, basically. And then the usher came and was like, there are a group of Muslim women who are very, very hell-bent on meeting you. They were waiting for me. So I literally thought, like, are they here to deliver a fatwa? Like, what's going on? What The mother was fully covered up, like, you know, mouth covered, full niqab. And she whispered to her daughter in Arabic. And she was like, so my mum is really, really Muslim, so she's probably not going to look you in the eye, but she thinks you should know that you are the best out of the troop. And she was so excited to see a Muslim go out there and say that shit. And I was like, how do you guys even know about this? And they were like, yeah, we're like huge fans. We've been following your career for a while. And then they made me think, like, how Islamophobic of it of myself was it to assume that they would come to and get tickets to the front row to hate on it. And then she was like, look, your song to Allah. And I thought, oh, now I'm going to get it. She was like, look, I get it. I have those conversations with Allah all the time. And I'm not gay, so I don't know what you've gone through. But you know you're only looking at one side of it. There's all this other stuff in the Quran. And she was like, I really think you need to realize that Allah loves you. And then she was like, I've got to go because we're, we're, get, we're going to Saudi tomorrow. And they literally like flew away. It was literally like floating away and their like burkas were just like floating in the air. And then it was like, okay. And then I just like burst out crying. I think I just was having a bit of a reality shift in that I had grown very certain that like white audiences were who I was performing for and who I wanted to win the affection for and Muslim audiences would never come to my show and if they did it wasn't for them because they've all screwed me up and it turns out that they were the biggest fans of all and resonated the most and so now my drag really ever since that moment is celebrating parts of the Middle East, as well as talking about the difficult stuff that's happened to me. If I'm honest about it and the audience are responding with love, then the result is love, if that makes sense. I never want to do a show that's based on hate anymore. 
you take pain and you turn it into something joyous and you turn it into something really galvanizing. I mean, I'm still don't know where I am with God, but within that moment, it was, I mean, I'm very obsessed with quantum physics, which is a slightly different thing, which is basically looking at how the same subatomic particle can be in multiple places at the same time. And it felt like that, like all the different sides of me that didn't match up, whether that's Arab identity, being Muslim, being queer, being gender fluid and all that, all of a sudden we're all at the same place at the same time. And that was like a God particle in a way. It was like a, oh, here I am. So I do think I found Allah in that moment. Tell Them I Am is presented by Higher Ground Audio and Spotify and produced by Dustlight Productions. I'm your host and executive producer, Misha Youssef. The executive producers at Higher Ground Audio are Dan Fearman, Mukta Mohan, and Anna Holmes. Janae Maribel is editorial assistant. From Dustlight Productions, Mary Knopf is our executive producer. Ariana Gharib Lee and Jonathan Shiflett are our producers. Arwen Nix is our editor. Valeria Alarcone is our apprentice. This episode was written by me, Arwen Nix, Ariana Gharib Lee, and Mary Knopf. It was sound designed by Arwen Nix and Jonathan Shiflett. The voice of Rumi in this episode is by my dad, Yusuf Ahmed. Valentina Rivera is our engineer. David Leinert is our composer and made our gorgeous original music. Emin Ahmed is our illustrator and the creator of our episodic art. Elizabeth Goodspeed made our amazing series tile art. Special thanks to Rachel Garcia, our development and operations coordinator. From Spotify, executive producers are Daniel Eck, Don Ostroff, and Courtney Holt. This podcast was originally a production of LAS Studios. <laughs>